You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. All right. Well, good morning once again. My name is still Jamie. I'm just standing over here now. Um, I, uh, I'm a little nervous. Uh, so if I start calling you a total weirdo, I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to uh, be here this morning. So maybe it's just the excitement. I actually got this on the calendar like the day after I preached last time because I had such a blast. So I like went to uh, the lectionary to look up May 8th, see what I was working with. And I opened it up and I said, oh no, I don't want to preach any of these texts. But you know, it's like, I don't have to. That's not, we're not required to use lectionary here, but it felt kind of weird just being like, nah, you know, like not rising up to the challenge. And the truth is I did feel like I had something to say about Psalm 23, but it's just like, Psalm 23 is really popular. Uh, Like, you've likely heard it before many times within church or without, and when you have something that popular, I know that for me, I I struggle to even read it without my brain going into power save mode. I experience it something like, the Lord is my shepherd, etc. Green pastures and whatnot. So it takes like a little bit of effort to, to get out of that, you know. So I've got some tools to deal with that. I went to seminary. Uh, so I'm basically just going to use some of those tools this morning. That's what we're going to do. Just tell me what's going on. Um, so one thing I like to do is find like a strange translation or, you know, one that's different than a lot of common ones. There's a guy named Robert Alter who's a Hebrew scholar, and I really like him for this reason. He like tries to preserve the Hebrew syntax, which is very different from English, uh, which usually gets you something that's catches the eye. Spoilers, this one is actually pretty similar, but it's a little different. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and that's, it works especially well with poetry, like psalms. So one other thing when you're dealing with something like poetry is poetry at its best can create like a world for you to step into and have like a conversation with. So we're going to do that. We're going to um, take two of the passages from Psalm 23 and have a little bit of a conversation with them, see what happens. Um, And uh, I would like to, I should say, I'd like to do the entirety of Psalm 23, but it takes too long. I know this because I've timed it. And I don't like long sermons, and I don't want to impose one upon you, so we won't do that. But yeah, so we'll we'll deal with two passages that way. And then I'm going to tell you a story from my life that's given me a lens that I think has changed the way that I read this text. That happens sometimes. You're going through life, you're picking up experiences, you're being formed in a certain way, and you go back to something that at one time was so familiar, and then it pops differently. So that's what we're going to do this morning. I should say, too, um, every now and then you'll see these, like, images on the screen. I, uh, I found this, like, AI art generator on the Internet that you, like, put in words and it makes the robot make a painting. I don't know why I did it. I just wanted something to, to put on the screen. Uh, but my wife, Adair, is an art historian by training, and she looked at it and said, it looks like um, Lisa Frank threw up on a Thomas Kincaid. <laughs> and I thought, well, when you put it that way... <laughs> I'm going to keep it in. So you can take or leave those as they come. Uh, I just wanted to give you a heads up. Anyway, uh, yeah, so this morning we're going to read Browder We're going to engage two texts and I'm tell you a story. We'll be done. You've got the lay of the land. You've got ears to hear. Let's go. Robert Alter. Let's get very comfortable, everybody. And put your, uh, your listening caps on, I guess. Let's just try and just pay attention to, like, anything that jumps out at you. How about that? Maybe that's enough with something so familiar. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In grass meadows he makes me lie down, by quiet waters guides me. My life he brings back, 
He leads me on pathways of justice for his name's sake. Though I walk in the veil of death's shadow, I fear no harm, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, it's they that console me. You sit at a table before me in the face of my foes. You moisten my head with oil. My cup overflows. Let but goodness and kindness pursue me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for many long days. My life he brings back. That's the thing that jumps out at me. That's normally rendered like he restores my soul, which is fine. I just have a preference for my life he brings back. It's got this image of like vitality and resurrection even that I really appreciate. And we find it connected to this idea of, of green pastures and still waters in this text. And so I wonder what for you, like when you think about a metaphor like green pastures or still waters, I wonder what comes to mind for you. What are the, the conditions, the experiences, the places you find yourself in your life that your life is coming back to you? So we'll take a minute and think about that. I know that for me, I'm an introvert, so any little slice of solitude, I can feel my batteries are charging. There's also a recipe that involves um, sunlight, a book, my wife, and a mimosa that seems to produce green pastures. I'm heading for green pastures tomorrow. Anybody want to share some green pasture conditions of your life? Yeah, that's a good one. Anybody else? All right, I feel that. Yeah. So y'all got it, you know. But I wonder, uh, I wonder how you relate to these things in your life. I wonder if you're like me. I really had to do some some soul searching as I was preparing for this. I noticed something. I noticed that, like, when I relate to green pastures in my life, I kind of relate to them like a treat, like a luxury. Like, what I should be doing is something productive, but sometimes I'll steal away and do something just, like, superfluous. But in this text, we find God leading us to green pastures, making us lay down there, as if to say there are times where, like, the destination for you in the mind of God is green pastures and still waters. As if to say that's part of our spiritual practice, our spiritual formation, something primary and not secondary. I guess that's the, the heart of like Sabbath after all. So not that surprising. But again, if you're like me, I stopped thinking about it as something important in that way. So I wonder if we'll carry this with us, if we'll keep our eyes peeled for, for green pastures, still waters, and just notice how we're relating to them. And then when we find ourselves there, I wonder if we'll take the advice of Kurt Vonnegut's uncle, Kurt Vonnegut is one of my favorite writers, and uh, he tells a story about his uncle being very insistent anytime they are at like a family picnic or something, having everybody pause and like look around for a moment, really soak it in, and say, well, isn't this nice? And that for us might become a prayer of gratitude. So I don't know, carry that this week. Throw up an antenna for green pastures, still waters. Notice how you relate to them or resist them. And if you find yourself there, maybe take time to soak it in and to notice it. And if, if all of that is too much, maybe just take a moment to have a reminder that, like, you aren't what you produce. 
and that like just being in a place and having fun or resting, you're inherently worthy of love and loved. Um, so that's that passage. Let's move on to another passage. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you're with me, your rod and your staff, it's they that console me. I have a lot of trouble with this text um, because, probably for many reasons, but the primary one is it's just like begging to be enlisted in the cause of like spiritual bypassing um, as if to say like, uh, to, like to shame yourself or others. If you ever feel fear in the face of like uncertainty or danger or death, you know? Like the spiritual ideal is to stick out your chin and say, I'm not scared. I trust that God has a shepherd's staff to guide me wisely and a beating stick for when the wolves come. So bring on the valley of the shadow of death. Like, I'll say up front, if that like ever is like helpful to you, I would never want to take that away from anybody who finds like comfort in that. That's good. But if you're using it to shame yourself or others, maybe don't do that. But it's like, it does seem as though on the surface, the surface reading, if we just like read this and don't really think about it any further, it's like, yeah. It's like, don't be scared, just trust God. But if that's really like the entirety of what it's getting at, we're in a bit of a pickle. I would say we're in quite a large pickle. Do you know why? Because quite famously, on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus stayed up late in the Garden of Gethsemane, well described as afraid, terrified even, crying blood. And of course he was. He was in the shadow of death. It's about to go down. He's been like talking and dropping hints for a long time at this point, like I'm gonna die and be resurrected. But here in this moment, right up against it, our Lord is very afraid and he's saying something different. He's saying, God, if there is any other way forward, I'll take that option. Like, please let there be something else. Like the story could have gone differently. The story could have gone where, like Jesus goes up sits in the garden and stares into the mid-distance and says, like, let them come, you know? <laughs> but that's not the story we have. So we should notice that. It also makes me think of um, Exodus 3. So Exodus 3, you'll recall, we're with Moses in the wilderness. Moses is walking along. He sees a bush that's burning, but it's not burning up. And like you would do, he goes over and he starts talking to it. And he has this conversation with God, and God's like, Moses... I would like you to liberate my people from the oppression of Pharaoh. Lead them out of Egypt. Which, like, for Moses, this may as well be the valley of the shadow of death. Like, Moses is just a dude. Moses is just a dude who killed a guy one time and then ran away. And then now he's supposed to go up against, like, the might of Pharaoh and his armies. So he has a few questions. One of them is, like, how am I even supposed to do this? Which is a fair question. And God says, oh... Well, I'll be with you, which, fair enough. But then God says, and the sign I will give to you so that you'll know that I'm with you is that when you get through it, you'll worship me on this mountain, and when you look back, you'll know that I was with you. Like, that's the sign. That's like the archetype in the Bible. I'm, I didn't know this until, like, later in life than I probably would have expected. That's the archetype of the Bible for, like, discerning the will of God and the presence of God is, like, you'll know in retrospect. <laughs> Which, you know, 
is like kind of funny. It's a little frustrating. But if we go poking around the Bible more often than not, instead of like some concrete truth coming down from on high and giving us like great confidence, we find something much more maddeningly ordinary like this. But I think there's a deep beauty in that as well. So Moses is really left with, okay, well, God's going to be with me, but I won't know God's, or the sign that I have to know that God is with me is I'll get through it and I'll look back and I'll know that God was with me. He's sort of left with like, maybe the, the advice we could like take out of this is like, Moses, you just keep going. In the midst of all the stuff you're about to come up against, which is a long list, just keep going. Of course, so simple. It's one thing to find this in like an ancient sacred text, but it pops up in strange places. So I'm going to show you a video clip from my favorite Christmas movie. And uh, I need to, it's from the end of the movie, so I need to catch you up. Basically, you have a guy named Chuck. He's a FedEx executive. He's very good at what he does. He's also a workaholic. He's been away for a long time. He comes home on Christmas Eve, and his intention is to propose to his fiance. But he gets called away at the last minute on another international business trip, and work always comes first, so he goes. That night, their plane crashes. And he wakes up on Christmas Day on an island by himself, quickly realizing that there is no help coming for him. And so he helps himself to the Christmas gifts he was transporting. These become the tools of his survival. And he survives. He survives for years. And then the desperation of a situation starts to crush in upon him, and he wants to control something, and he tries to end his life. It doesn't work, mercifully, because this is an aha moment for him. And then much later, a piece of a porta potty washes in. He can use that as a sail, get off the island back to safety. So we're going to pick up. He's talking to his friend. He's back home. And uh, he's going to be talking about this aha moment that he had. And then he'll also talk about this other like valley of despair he finds himself in because the love of his life thought he was dead and moved on. So he's having to apply the same lesson again. So let's watch that. That's when this feeling came over me like a warm blanket. I knew somehow I had to stay alive somehow I had to keep breathing even though there was no reason to hope and all my logic said that I would never see this place again so that's what I did I stayed alive. I kept breathing. And then one day that logic was proven all wrong because the tide came in, gave me a sail. And now here I am. I'm back in Memphis talking to you. I have ice in my glass. And I've lost her all over again. I'm so sad that I don't have Kelly. But I'm so grateful that she was with me on that island. And I know what I have to do now. 
keep breathing. Because tomorrow the sun will rise. Who knows what the tide could bring? In the valley of hopelessness, in the valley of the shadow of death, he finds a message, which is keep breathing for tomorrow, the sun will rise, and who knows what the tide will bring. When Moses and the Israelites are finally hightailing it out of Egypt, after everything they've been through, being hotly pursued by Pharaoh's armies, they can see up ahead that they're about to dead end into the Red Sea. And as you might imagine, they're a little afraid, but they keep going, and then against all odds they get there, and a way appears where there was no way. Jesus in Gethsemane, there's a moment where the authorities come to arrest him. And his friends, at first, are thinking they might want to fight for him. He has an off-ramp, a different way. But he resists it. Instead, he keeps going into the face of death and against all odds, resurrection. I say all this to say, perhaps, to not fear in the valley of the shadow of death, in light of uncertainty and hopelessness, when there seems to be no way, we might find something more like not freezing there, not giving up there, but instead to keep going, to keep breathing, for who knows what the tide will bring. Uh, sorry if, uh, if I spoiled Castaway for anybody. It's been out for like 22 years. I'm gonna tell you a story now. Um, a story from my life that is a difficult story. It's also a hopeful story, so I hope you'll stay with me. Um, I might get emotional while I tell it. Like, there's probably a really good chance. I'm now trying to talk myself out of doing it, you know. Uh, um, and I'm ultimately fine with that uh, because I think it's appropriate. I just want to give you a heads up to spare you from any secondhand cringe. Um, <laughs> but it's fitting that I'm talking to you now because May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And we're coming upon about a year since I had uh, a pretty severe mental health crisis. Um, the most difficult chapter of my life. <clears throat> um, summer of 2021 was really great for so many reasons. Like we were coming back into the building for the first time, finally. We were eating hot dogs in the parking lot. We had more mobility than we had had the previous summer. But in the midst of all this goodness and all this excitement, I started having panic attacks. And I don't know, like, how to explain panic attacks. <laughs> they don't... Um, they don't require triggers, so they can just happen. Have you seen Ted Lasso? That uh, I think does a great job at portraying panic. It's sort of this like weird combination of like in full body dread, you know, very very unpleasant physical sensations, coupled with uh, a mental component that for me was sort of like spiraling anxiety, like you're steering a ship, and the wheel goes like faster than you can catch it, uh, which sort of creates this cloud that is, um, uh, results in feeling very far away from, from everything and everyone. Time sort of passes strangely. And it's, uh, it's sort of hopelessness-inducing. It always feels like it'll never end. 
Uh, so for me, that resulted in sort of a fixation on the terror of death. And this got like worse and worse and until I had a, a 24-hour panic attack, one that just like didn't quite stop. I think they were probably cascading panic attacks, but, but that, uh, that felt like an eternity to me and I can remember being up early in the morning and I was sitting on the couch in my office at home and I was just like trying anything to make it stop. I was reading the Bible like I was going to cast a spell over myself or something and just like make it stop. It's like not really a way I engage scripture usually, but I'd take it. I read Psalm 23. And it felt completely hollow, like the most useless thing I'd ever read. I felt completely disconnected from it. I found myself praying in ways I don't normally pray. Just like begging God to save me. But the line was dead. And I felt just completely hopeless and alone. And ultimately, paradoxically, in that moment, the thing that I most wanted was to, like, not be alive anymore, just for the peace. But I noticed something. I noticed it was uh, time to wake my wife up for work. So I got up, and I woke her up. I took my dog on a walk. I went to appointments, went to lunches with congregants, one of which was like two hours, and he didn't know I was having a panic attack the whole time, and I've never asked him if he wondered why I was being so weird, or if I was being weird. Maybe I was playing it cool, I don't know. And eventually this broke, but I had more panic attacks. I had panic attacks at the eye doctor at stoplights. Right there. singing songs about hope and resurrection. All the while, crumbling inside, wholly fixated on the terror of death. I received feedback around this time that I was not quite joyful enough. <laughs> um, so added a little vocational despair to the mix. Uh, and just all of this is to say, if it didn't feel sustainable, didn't feel like it was ever gonna end, just the what my life was. This thus concludes the really heavy part of this story, uh, just to catch you up. But I had gotten some tools from my therapist that with practice started to work, make a difference, so to speak. I went to the doctor and I experienced a miracle because I told him what was happening to me and he prescribed me a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor called Zoloft which is sort of a two-fold miracle. One of them is that it exists. We live, we live in the future, if you didn't know this. Like, we live at a time where we have a medical technology that can regulate the level of serotonin in your brain. And we know that this can be helpful for treating things like panic, anxiety, depression. We know that that can be helpful for that. Not really sure why at this point. There's no, like, conclusive, agreed-upon explanation for why that works. I consider that a miracle. Miracle two is that it did work. That my first medication and my first dosage were effective for me. That's not a given. But it did work. I take it every day, and as I do so, 
I tell God, thank you for this gift of medical technology. Because I think it saved my life. Um, so back to the end of last summer. As the weeks went on, it was a little worse before it got better, but the lights started to come back on, and I started to try to make sense of what had happened to me. And I noticed something. I noticed as I thought back through um, from the other side, and I was thinking about the things that happened to me, where I had been so certain that the place where God was was nowhere, now I saw God everywhere with me getting up off the couch in my wife's embrace as I cried in her arms, in the flowers that she populated my nightstand with for weeks to remind me that there was beauty in the world. God was with me in the space between the conversations that I had with so many of you, with my dear friends. And God was with me right there, holding me up as I was crumbling inside reforming my staggered breaths into broken hallelujahs. It's as though, looking back on it, like God was with me just in the keeping on being alive. And it got me thinking about like our creation story. If you'll recall, in the creation story, the moment humanity switched on is that first breath. Like God breathes God's spirit into humanity and they become conscious beings. And I, uh, I was thinking about that. A primary therapeutic for panic is like watching your breathing. So right in front of my face, I had been so fixated on a perpetual return of God to me, which was a really helpful metaphor after the fact. But anyway, we get to a couple weeks ago, I went to the lectionary on May 8th. I saw Psalm 23 there. One of the reasons I didn't want to preach on it is because it uh, wasn't super helpful last time I had encountered it. But I noticed something. I noticed that I was carrying a lens that I didn't once have. And there were words beneath the words. So I experienced something like this. Uh, God is with me. In green pastures, God is with me. By still waters, God is with me. On the pathways of justice, God is with me. Locked tight in the grip of the terror of death, God is with me. In the presence of those who think the worst of me and wish the worst for me, I'm feasting. Because none of that can touch the fact that God is with me. And so, surely, goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. And I dwell in the house of the Lord forever, because at the bottom of everything, unshakably, God is with me. It's as though the psalm had become a list of a spectrum of conditions of life, highs and lows, shot through with a constant that is the living God. Or put differently, something like all of life, all the way through life, is life. Perpetually given, perpetually, most definitely a gift from first breath until the breath beyond breathing. So UBC, in height and depth and joy and dread, keep breathing.
for who knows what the tide could bring. Amen. We, uh, at this point in the service, likely with time of silence, to invite the Spirit to shape us as we receive what we've heard. Uh, Perhaps the Spirit will correct something I said incorrectly. Perhaps the Spirit will minister something new. So we'll take that time now.